welcome everyone to the LSE <laughs> and to this event uh, titled The Kurdish Women's Movement on Revolution, Militarism and Body Politics. Uh, we are very lucky to have Isabel Kaiser today with us uh, to talk about her research on the topic. Um, this event is part of the Kurdish um, study series uh, established about six months ago by me and Robert Law, the Middle East Center Deputy Director. Um, and um, so this is our third event and we are hoping to have more events uh, on this issue to, to generate a context and discussion uh, between academics and non-academics on issues related to the Kurdish politics. Um, so I'm Zeynep Kaya, <laughs> I'm a research fellow at the Middle East Center here. Um, so we will start the event very soon. I just have a couple of housekeeping things and then I will introduce our speaker. Uh, and then uh, our speaker will talk about 30, 35 minutes and then we will open the discussion to questions and answers. Um, so uh, initially, um, please, you know, I'm sure you all did please silence your phones. Um, uh, and uh, the talk is being recorded and it will be available on podcast uh, later on. Um, the, there will be some photos being taken uh, for promo promo promotional purposes. So if you have issues with your photo being taken, please let Rosa know uh, so that she will avoid you basically <laughs> in taking the photos. Um, if you would like to tweet uh, about the event, the hashtag is hashtag LSE Kurds. Um, and that's it basically from me. Um, so we are I'm delighted to have Isabel uh, here. Uh, I've known her for a, for a long time. Not, uh, and she has, uh, I think a couple of years ago during her PhD, she had just come back from the region. Uh, so she just finished her PhD um, in, in, in SOAS, at SOAS um, Center for Gender Studies. Um, she's also a postdoctoral research associate uh, there. Her thesis with the title Militant Femininity, the Kurdistan Women's Liberation Movement Between Violence and Resistance is a transnational, long title, yes. but very interesting, uh, is a transnational analysis of patterns and processes of female mobilization, organization, and education in the activist, political, and armed spheres of the PKK. Her work contributes to debates around gender and war, feminism and nationalism, as well as militarism, conflict, and sexuality. Aside from her academic career, Isabel has worked in diplomacy and media. She's currently the co-director of Culture Project and an advisor at the Iraqi Center for Policy Analysis and Research to grassroots organizations based in Iraqi Kurdistan and London. Uh, so this is about Isabel. Uh, I'm not going to delay the talk any further. Um, I think your presentation is set up. So please welcome Isabel. First of all, thank you, Sena, for inviting me to speak here today, and thanks to all of you for being here today. Um, a lot of people in this room were somehow part of this journey, and it's my great pleasure to share some of my findings with you here today. Now, over the last seven years or so, we've gotten used to seeing images like this, women fighting at the forefront of the Rojava revolution, but also women leading to pol the, the political fight for a more democratic Turkey. These photos, especially of the female fighters, have often been essentializing, objectifying, and brushing over a complex or complex histories of struggle. 
what drove my research from the onset were two simple questions. How did the women get to play such key roles in the Kurdish women's movement? And what enables them to stand their ground so firmly, both in the armed and the political sphere? What I would like to do today is to speak about the history of the Kurdish women's movement, highlighting the struggles women were leading against both their party comrades, mostly men, but also women, to be able to fight against the external enemies such as the Turkish army and more recently the so-called Islamic State. I want to challenge the idea that these women came out of nowhere or that these central positions or the key positions were given to them by the male leadership, Abdullah Öcalan. Now, while the, uh, histories, um, while the movement's histories offer some answers, it's also important to understand the party's uh, ideological underpinnings and its education system. So first, I will give a brief overview of the history of the Kurdish women's movement, zooming into one key moment of internal contention between the female and the male members of the party. I will then talk about how the women become these steadfast revolutionaries that we now see so prominently across the Kurdish Middle East. I will finish by sharing some thoughts on the party's body politics, which I argue are at the heart of the changing gender norms and relations. Now, um, the PKK was founded in 1979 in Fis, a small village in Bakur in eastern Turkey. In the first party program of the PKK, the women's question was not formally addressed. Like other national liberation movements, it was thought that women would gain their freedom in the course of the anti-colonial struggle. At the first party congress, two women were present. One of them was Sakina Chances, who you see on the left here, who went on to become one of the most important figures of the women's movement. From the mid-90s onwards, however, Öcalan, the party leader, and the man in the middle here, um, put a lot of intellectual labor into the ideological creation of the free woman's identity and the role within the movement, a process that went hand in hand with the formation of the Mahsum Korkmaz <coughs> Academy in the Beka Valley in Lebanon, where Öcalan was based for 20 years. Throughout the 1980s and 90s, a large number of women went to this academy uh, to get party education. Here, the triple oppression of women was first discussed, so the intersecting dynamics between sexism, racism, and class. Handan Chalayan, a Kurdish scholar, traces the development of uh, the, the free woman's identity from the 1980s to the late 90s, showing that the biggest challenge um, in the efforts to mobilize Kurdish women for the armed struggle was to overcome the honor barrier, which linked men's honor to women's bodies and sexuality. This barrier needed to be removed so that women could leave the house and join the movement. Until the early 1990s, Öcalan changed this discourse so that the liberation of, um, of men and all of society was hinged on women's liberation. In this process, he also linked women's powers to a mystical past, the Neolithic era, when women of Mesopotamia were not only free, but the makers of their own destiny. In this paradigm shift, women, women needed to liberate themselves from the shackles of slavery in order to rediscover their inner goddess, Ishtar, while the men were tasked with killing the dominant male. Now, while more women were joining the guerrilla and fighting in the military ranks from the late 1990s onwards, no, early 1990s onwards, more were also dying, some of them committing spectacular acts of resistance. Berivan, Beritan, and Silan, who you see on this slide, left a particularly significant mark in the early years, each of them sparking a new era of female mobilization. The resistance of Berivan, who was a city guerrilla in Chisre, helped to spark the uprisings in Chisre in 1989. Beritan 
cornered in a battle against the Iraqi Kurdish, Bishmerka jumped off a cliff to evade capture. Her death leap pushed Öcalan to initiate a separate woman's army in 1993. And Silan, who detonated a bomb in the, mil uh, in the middle of a military parade in 1996, became the modern-day Ishtar, a symbol of female dedication to the cause. Now, all of my interviewees emphasize that the early years, especially the 1990s, were a particularly difficult period, not only militarily, but also internally, the battle of the sexes being a constant feature of daily life and struggle. Just because, women joined a just because we joined a revolutionary movement did not mean that men in the party had changed. In the early years, we struggled against the same hierarchies in the par party as in society. I was repe repeatedly told during my interviews. One former commander told me, we are women, so of course we have physical limitations. Men are stronger than women, that's a fact. In the mountains, it was like a competition. We had to do everything like the men, or we didn't stand a chance. For example, if he carried 50 kilos of flour, then I had to do that too. Normally, my body cannot carry 50 kilos, but in order to get accepted by the men, I had to do it. We had to fight in praxis with men. If he goes and attacks a caracol, a Turkish army outpost, then I have to do that too. And then we can talk about equality. In the mountains, we experienced this the hard way, and we fought for this equality physically. End of quote by a former commander. Um, in March 1998, Öcalan finally published his ideology of women's liberation. He had been in constant discussion with women, pushing them to think about what a woman's army could look like, how a woman's party would be organized, and according to what kind of ideology. Öcalan was the one who formulated the questions, stru structured the discussions and lectures, and it was those lectures that were recorded, transcribed, and sent to the mountain camps then for education. Nevertheless, Women's everyday fight in the mountains, their resistance in the prisons, and their death in protest of Turkish oppression influenced him greatly. Um, at the end of 1998, the Sixth Party Congress was held in the mountains. In preparation for this Congress, Öcalan sent a decree in which, sent different decrees in which he frequently discussed the formation of a new woman's party. However, during the Congress on 15th February 1999, Öcalan was arrested, which sent shockwaves through the Kurdish Middle East as well as the diaspora. Despite the chaos, the proceedings in the mountains continued, and after the General Congress ended, a Women's Congress was held, depicted here. During that Congress, the women decided to go ahead with their planned formation of a women's party called PJKK, the Kurdistan Women's Workers' Party. If PJKK was to be an independent party or a women's party within the PKK was not entirely clear, but remained a, pros or a topic for discussion. <clears throat> um, the predominantly male leadership tried to pressure the women not to go ahead with their women's party, arguing that the party is going through difficult times and all the power should be united in the central committee, hence the male leadership. A separate party could weaken the PKK and the enemy could use this situation, they argued. They didn't accept the decision that the women, um, of the Women's Congress, which resulted in a big standoff between the women and the male leadership. The women who participated in the Congress were, hel were held in detention in a valley as a result. Abandoned by the leadership because Öcalan was in prison, the women were kept hostage in that valley for almost three months. Here they tried to uh, find a way out of their predicament. According to my informants, the, the women did not want to speak against the party because their leader had just been arrested, but at the same time, women's gains could also not be compromised. 
After a few months back and forth negotiations, joint meeting were held during which the female leaders chosen by the women were punished and removed from their posts. In their place were put women chosen by men. Uh, this power struggle between men and women and women allied with men continued throughout the following year until PGKK became PGR, the Free Women's Party. Thereafter, the overt opposition to men um, stopped and it became clear that the Women's Party would exist within the framework of the PKK and not independently from men. This is still the case today. The women are operating or able to operate within their autonomous ranks as long as they do not transgress the boundaries set out by the PKK or Öcalan's liberation ideology. Now, after his arrest, Öcalan continued to reformulate his vision for a democratic future of Kurdistan and Turkey. He abandoned the goal to establish an independent Kurdistan and introduced democratic confederalism, a democratic, ecological, gender-equal social system, a bottom-up system of self-government. Democratic confederalism seeks to develop a mode of ordering beyond the nation-state and capitalism that goes hand-in-hand hand with a process of social reconstruction. In March 2005, democratic confederalism was officially declared as the new party ideology. With the announcement, women's centrality in the struggle was finally official. Shortly after, Öcalan proposed a co-chair system, suggesting that all political leadership should be occupied by a man and by a woman. Having the backing of the leadership once again, women continued to organize and mobilize around the co-presidency system and the 40% women's quota. As a parallel effort to the political and military struggle, the women's movement also started to develop genealogy the woman's science. Proposed by Öcalan in 2008 and since then developed in the mountains and in the women's centers across the Kurdish Middle East and the diaspora, genealogy and its advocates have put into writing their collective experience and knowledge which emerged from four decades of political and armed struggle, finding a new vocabulary for understanding the intersecting modes of oppression they are fighting. For members of the movement, genealogy is a philosophical, intellectual and political practice that challenges male knowledge production and rewrites histories from a female perspective. Genealogy is also a tool to awaken women and give them a voice and awareness about their history and position in society, teaching them to question and challenge male dominance in all spheres of life. Now today, the Kurdish women's movement is a versatile transnational movement that spans the cities and mountains of the four different parts of Kurdistan. It's also very active in building broad international networks of solidarity with other women's movements globally and is currently working to establish a democratic world women's confederalism. From 2005 onwards, uh, the wider Kurdish liberation movement focused on the transnational development of democratic confederalism. I don't have time to get into how all of this is done in the four parts of Kurdistan, but I'll just give a brief overview of what's been happening in Rojava before I talk about the process of becoming a revolutionary. Mm. Now, in Syria, the PKK members who stayed behind after Öcalan's expulsion in 1999 established the first formal political party in 2003, the Democratic Union Party, PYD. After having been based in Syria for over 20 years, the PKK enjoyed much support among the Kurdish population, not least because as many as 10,000 Syrian Kurds had joined the PKK from the 1980s onwards, creating a network of sympathizer and martyr families between Damascus, Aleppo, and Kamishli. At the time, 
the PYD was merely one among dozens of then still illegal Kurdish parties in Syria and only managed to gain the monopoly over the political and military field with the outbreak of the Syrian uprising in 2012. Since then, the PYD and its armed wings, the YPG and the female-only YPG, took control of, the Sir of Syria's northeast, or Rojava. Over the course of the last seven years, battle lines have shifted considerably, with the YPG YPG venturing out far beyond the Kurdish northeast to Raqqa and Deir al-Sor, but also losing Afrin after the Turkish invasion and occupation in February 2018. This is a map of the current situation in Syria, yellow being the area that's controlled by the SDF. For the women's movement, the importance of Rojava cannot be underestimated. Here we see the moment when the SDF um, liberated Raqqa, an operation that was headed by Rojda Felat, uh, the female commander who you see in the center here. Rojava has been labeled a women's revolution, giving the large number of women who joined and fought against Daesh resisting heroically in Kobani, Shengal, Raqqa, and during the last battle against Daesh in Bahos this year. Behind the front lines, party members and civilian activists have worked tirelessly to establish a civil structure that would match the success on the battlefield. Building on the grassroots work undertaken since 2003 and the long-standing support for the PKK in the region, women built their structure according to Echelon's model of democratic confederalism. Um, <clears throat> countless women's houses, academies, communes, and cooperatives have been built since 2012. Um, child and forced marriage, as well as polygamy, have been banned where the PYD and its sister parties hold power. Here we see a curriculum of one of the women's houses offering uh, education to <coughs> women. Perhaps one of the best examples of what the women's movement is doing, also under the umbrella of genealogy, is Shinwar, the women's village. Here, women have built every single brick uh, to build a village by and for women. Now home to war widows, victims of domestic violence, or women who choose not to get married, this village is economically self-sufficient, offering a home and education to women and their children. The idea being that women can live communally in tune with nature and independently from men. Overall, seeing what women are capable of on and beyond the battlefield has created new imaginaries of what a multi-ethnic and gender equal society could look like. The Rojava experience giving new momentum to the Kurdish movement in the region and beyond. <clears throat> now, while the movement's history and current efforts in Rojava offer some answers to the women's movement, of, of why the women's movement is so strong and resilient in the face of constant battles against internal and external enemies or adversaries, another site of resistance starts in party education. In order to understand why women stand so firmly at the foreground of the many battles in the Kurdish Middle East, I spent a few weeks in different guerrilla training and education camps where apart from um, participant observation, I conducted interviews with commanders and uh, young guerrillas, asking them a simple set of questions about personal trajectories, everyday uh, routines, and visions for the future. Conceptually, it was very important for me to move away from this binary of victimization, so seeing women as pawns in a male or masculinist order, but also and emancipation, the idealization of Kurdish female fighters, and instead discuss how the movement itself defines freedom empowerment, and the role of women within the larger quest of liberation. 
And instead of asking why women joined the movement, that's, that's important to understand, but today I wanted to focus on the everyday and gendered processes of living, learning, and transforming within the movement, looking at the tools and mechanisms that enable the women uh, to become uh, these brave and heroic female fighters. <clears throat> now, upon joining the PKK, the party members leave behind their old social ties and cut all contact with their family or families. Instead, all mothers of Kurdistan become their mothers and they gain thousands of new brothers and sisters in their party comrades. They also agree to refrain from romantic and sexual relationships, swearing, gambling, and drinking alcohol. From now on, they're subjects of the party, which decides who trains where and um, works where and for how long, who is sent to war, and who works behind the front lines. In the first six months of training, the recruits cover basic weapons and physical training, receive the first ideological lessons, and learn about the importance of friendship, communal life, and how to ob obtain the will to resist, irade, and to control their bodies and minds. Apart from being physically disciplined during these first education periods, the recruits learn about Abdullah Öcalan's concept of freedom and how struggling for that vision of freedom makes you free. This educational process is gendered insofar as that the female recruits learn that in order to fight, they first have to learn to believe in themselves, in their strengths as women, and in a better world. There's a clearly laid out curriculum for the four months of the academy that I visited here, um, which is structured in educational, ideological, and theoretical lessons. Once the new guerrillas have the will to resist, have irade, officially they can do anything. Control their bodies, go on dangerous operations, kill the enemy, endure pain, loss, and physical strain. I say officially because unofficially, of course, the reality is different. And the fighters suffer greatly from losing their friends, witnessing violence, or leaving behind their families and children. Many young recruits cannot sleep, have bad dreams, miss their mothers and children, and sh show sudden outbursts of emotion. One of the trainees at the camp where I stayed devel developed a stutter after her brother was martyred. Shedding the system life, as, it's, as the party says, um, and becoming a subject of the party can be both liberating and painful, especially for those who str struggle to live up to the expectation of becoming like Silan, the modern-day goddess. The difficulties and contradictions that emerge in this process of becoming a revolutionary are dealt with during the regular criticism and self-criticism sessions, where the progress of achieving the militant personality is discussed and eventual faults such as bourgeois behavior or capitalist mindsets are critiqued. <clears throat> um, life at the camp was hard work and tough training. A guerrilla's uh, day starts at 4.30 with um, a, a morning ritual and then followed by one hour of morning sport, breakfast at six, uh, weapons training in the morning, lunch at 12, and then two hours of ideological training in the afternoon before uh, endurance training before dinner, and then another education before, um, before bedtime, when the sun goes down. But life at the camp was also full of compassion and genuine fun. One afternoon, the guerrillas trained with balloons as targets. Dozens of colorful balloons were inflated and hung in the trees. This brought, brought much joy to the training, especially when later the balloons were arranged as a parkour, where they had to shoot from afar and then roll and crawl over and shoot the last one standing up. And the group cheered every time someone hit 
a target or a balloon and ran on. The fine line between death and life, however, between sadness and laughter, destruction and beauty were omnipresent in all encounters, stories and activities. Because countless of young women and men die in the many battles against the Turkish, Iranian and Syrian regime or the many militias in Syria. This is a small laminated card that was given to me by one of the guerrillas who, um, who don't have a lot of personal belongings, but amongst the ones that they keep, often they keep a little token of remembrance of their fallen friends. This one here shows also a Silan, another famous martyr, who instead of being captured by the Iranian army, when wounded, collected her friend's hand grenades and then detonated her own so that she would have the biggest impact possible on the enemy army that was approaching. Martyrdom is deemed a necessity by those who resist oppression for the cause of the nation. It is seen as the only route to a meaningful life. Lali Khalili shows in the context of Palestine that this link of loving life, wanting to live a worthy life, and thus being prepared to sacrifice one's life, has been evoked by many post-colonial liberation movements such as the Palestinians, Hezbollah, the Cuban Revolution, or the Black Panthers. Khalili describes hypermasculine heroism that is being celebrated at many martyr ceremonies or memorials, um, valuing virtues considered masculine, courage, violence, self-sacrifice. However, based on my observations attending many of these martyr funerals across the Kurdish Middle East, um, men and women get equal celebratory rituals. And, women because, and because women have such a long history of contributing to and dying for the party and its liberatory quest, the supposedly male characteristics have become gender neutral. However, every time a woman falls in the struggle, it is emphasized that she was not only fighting for the liberation of Kurdistan and a democratic confederal future, but also for the liberation of women, the whole region and potentially the whole world. I found that the martyr culture is a key location where a sense of victimhood and sacrifice, but also of belonging, resistance, and of a vision for a future democratic confederation are negotiated. As I mentioned, the PKK's ideology, the liberation in the PKK ideology, the liberation of the land is synonymous with the liberation of women. And it is them who are currently the markers of progress in Kurdistan. Contrary to previous nationalisms in the Middle East, such as Iran or Turkey or previous Kurdish nationalisms, women are no longer in need of protection, but are asked to participate in all areas, areas of self-defense and non-state nation building. In the movement's ideology, honor is not left up to the men to defend, but an honorable woman is she who picks up a weapon or stands in an election um, in order to defend herself and fight for the freedom of others. Women have not only been using spaces provided by a patriarchal order, but they have rewritten and reorganized that order in, uh, into separate women's structures. Abdullah Öcalan opened certain doors, but it was the women who engaged in the daily struggle against this male mentality, as they call it, in society and in the PKK. This is a daily struggle that continues to this day. Now, to conceptualize both the emancipatory aspect of this ideology and movement, and at the same time to grasp the strictly unified and militarized woman's struggle, I developed the concept of uh, militant femininity, which I won't go into too much, but I just briefly, um, militant femininity consists of the term militant, which has a specific meaning in the PKK. It is a signifier for those who follow the party leader Abdullah Öcalan and his ideology. In party literature, 
Militants are described with adjectives such as honest, dedicated, steadfast, principled, abstinent, communal, sincere, self-critical, loyal, and prepared to dedicate their lives and death to the struggle, freedom, humanity, people, and the leadership. And militant femininity com consists of femininity. So this liberation ideology is gendered insofar as that women operate within a clearly set out idea or framework of liberation. To gain access to this new identity of a revolutionary, women enter a bargain with the party, as I argue. They give up certain things, such as sexuality, privacy, individualism, and in turn gain a whole new existence, a whole new life as a revolutionary. Militant femininity is a conceptual lens that helped me look at how ideas around women's participation are produced and implemented, but also how they shift according to context, from politicians to martyr mothers to female fighters. One thing they all have in common, apart from the adherence to Ejana, is the idea that bodies should be controlled, that relationships should not be had if they are not truly equal in the civilian sphere or not had at all for the guerrillas. This abstinent contract, abstinence contract, as I call it, raises interesting questions around body politics, about the ways <coughs> bodies are controlled and disciplined in the party, and how this control is justified and lived by. In party ideology, sexuality is not for militants, because it would keep women in a subordinate position, when instead they need to be fighting for a new society that brings freedom, gender equality, and a communal life. I'm highlighting this part of the ideology not because I want to sensationalize it in any way, but because it relates to the question of what kind of femininity and masculinities are being practiced within what kind of framework of liberation. Taking seriously the issue of sexuality and body politics allows us to ask questions about what forms of control remain or are reinvented or shifted when women join the party. Following the women's own argumentation, living in a strictly policed framework without sex gives them more and not less freedom. They cannot become dependent on men, get pregnant, or neglect their revolutionary duties due to romantic feelings for a comrade. Also for the civilian sphere, the ideology says, as long as democratic relationships are not possible, as long as both men and women are still, still have a patriarchal mindset, they're better off not having relationships at all. Because they would sooner or later enslave women again. One high female commander told me, we're not against sex, but we're against sexuality becoming an important marker of identity. We are revolutionaries, and as such, we want to change all of society, also the role sexuality plays in society. <clears throat> Becoming a political and armed fighter gives women a new set of power tools in this very costly fight, such as highly unified and disciplined ranks, which allows women to then go on and commit these spectacular acts of resistance that we've been witnessing across the Kurdish Middle East. What I mean to say is that these party bargains hold great emancipatory power and that chosen abstinence can be seen as one of the main tools of resistance that strengthen the female ranks. However, this goes hand in hand with a strict process of discipline and coercion. I found that the abstinence contract is perhaps a necessity, it is, but it's also at the heart of the new gender norms and relations in the making and key to the party's ability to control its revolutionaries. This becomes most visible when party members transgress these rules. If caught in the act, couples are separated, sent to education, or go to prison. Therefore, freedom here is never individual freedom, but always a communal strive towards a more just future. Or in the words of one of the, an, another high commander that I interviewed, she says, 
Now in the Middle East, it's very difficult. Violence, destruction, and massacres are everywhere. But no matter how bad it is, if there are people in this horror who have hope and believe in something, who are fighting against all that is bad, this is freedom. Now to conclude, um, historically and cross-culturally, women participa women's participation in revolutionary <coughs> movements has often not translated into representation in position, positions of political power, a fact that the Kurdish women's movement is acutely aware of. One commander told me, we have studied all the previous revolution movements, revolutionary movements and the role of women in them, and we learned a lot from them. We understood that we have to... Um, have to have independent organizational structures in peace and in wartime in order to prevent men from taking back power. On this path to liberation that the women's movement has been engaged in for the past 40 years, new roles have been assigned, new gender norms and relations have been defined. Women become goddesses and men kill their dominant men. Today, women and men are treated as equal comrades in the party. Romantic and sexual love is directed towards the struggle and the land, other physical and personal desires are curbed. As such, the framework of liberation sets clear parameters of who the militants are or ought to be. If successfully learned, performed, and internalized, it also lays out the path ahead to go and fight, and through fighting, being free, liberating others and making sure that the female structures endure. However, this transformation from women into goddesses still involve contradictions. For example, the process of becoming a party subject is not open to all women, but only to women who are prepared to desexualize themselves when entering the public sphere or the party, similarly to other anti-colonial movements. Respectable and honorable, partic honorable participation in the public sphere is hinged on an idea of purity, an unfaltering attachment to the homeland, fighting and sadly very likely dying for it. Substituting sexual love for the love of the homeland is enough reason to be excluded from the free woman or free man's identity. So the liberation ideology remains deeply gendered with the free woman being, in a, in, being a progressive but an essentialized marker of the aspired non-state nation. It's important to note that with the Kurdish women's movement it's never a clear-cut either or case but very much always a both and. This movement complicates and confirms reinvents and reproduces theories, knowledges and tropes about gender and war and nationalism and feminism. Despite this, or perhaps because of these contradictions, the Kurdish women's movement has made tremendous gains in terms of gender-based equality and justice that go far beyond the guerrilla ranks. They have managed to establish the co-chair system in all areas of organizing. They have implemented the 40% women's quota in all political bodies have autonomous women's structures running alongside all other party structures and are the driving forces behind a whole new system that's being built in Rojava. I would go so far as to say that the women are the backbone of the PKK as a whole and that, that this movement would, it not, would not be where it is today were it not for the women who are simultaneously struggling for the liberation of women and for the liberation of the land. Thank you very much. Thank you, Isabel. This was a fantastic talk, uh, very interesting, very rich. And uh, you explained the tension between um, communal goals or 
the goals of the revolution and, and nationalism. Uh, and so the tension between that and the individual uh, very well. And this, uh, what I want to uh, do is to open this for conversation. And I'm sure there are lots of questions because your talk brought lots of questions to mind as well. I'm sure this is just a very small glimpse of your extensive research on the topic. Um, but just to uh, begin with, um, I wanted to hear more, a little bit more about if you can, um, you know, this um, sexuality issue. So how, how much LGBT play into it? Um, so so that's one that's one aspect. Did it come up at all during your interviews? Is it an issue or is does the party have a response to, to this? Is there a debate on that? Um, and this second one is um, this uh, whole idea of your, your own view of this tension between prioritization of the party and its ideology and the bigger goals and overlooking the individuals, yeah. kind of, almost like overlooking the individuals and, uh, you know, to what extent is this agency? To what, to what kind of liberation is this? You know, just a little bit, if you could elaborate on that a little bit more. Uh, but for now, let's get a couple of questions before, from the audience. Before, so just to let you know, that it, this is being recorded by microphone over there, but when you're asking your questions, if you could raise your voice, it would be great so that the podcast gets it clearly. And if you could introduce yourself, you know, just your name and affiliation, that would be great. And uh, please keep your questions short. Uh, please keep your answers uh, concise um, so that we can get as much as possible uh, in the next 45 minutes. Okay, any questions? Yes, thanks, that's wonderful. My name is Les. You referred briefly to masculinity and femininity under this regime of party. If I understood correctly, it's a question, that some forms of supposed masculinity were made gender neutral. That is the, the, the positive aspects that defined as, as a matter of equality between men and women. While other aspects perhaps were marginalized, such as the competitive mentality that was inflicted on the women who had joined. You must carry what we carry and so on. This isn't really a question. I wasn't sure in, in the end what you meant by the, the redefinition of the recasting of masculinity and femininity. Thank you very much. I'm Gina Vale and Casey, I'll just over the road. Um, I wanted to ask there was a, a myth, I suppose, that was put out about Daesh fighters who were killed by women would go to hell. And I didn't, I, I'd be very interested to know how the women took that on themselves to be kind of almost like a battle cry or how that maybe shifted women's position within the, the PKK as a whole. Okay, is this enough now yeah. to go ahead? Over to you, Sabah. Yes, so I'll start with yours. The issue of LGBTIQ, um, that did not come up in my interviews until I asked. Um, generally, questions around sexuality were difficult to address because it's portrayed as something menial, something that can be neglected, something that's not important. And I understand that because they truly have much more 
pressing issues that they have to take care of is uh, if ISIS is overrunning your land, you, you, you truly do not um, perhaps think so much around issues of femininity and sexuality and so on. So that was, that, that was difficult to address anyway. That's, um, the interesting bit about the LGBTIQ is that Öcalan has not said anything conclusive about the issue. He's made minor remarks, but not, it's not as fleshed out as anything else that he says. Usually has an answer to everything. Um, um, and so every person I would ask would give me a different answer. I would hear things like, it's fine, you know, it doesn't matter, they're as welcome in our ranks as everyone else. We all have to curb our sexuality. If they can do that and still be in the men's and the women's structures, then that's okay. I heard that uh, uh, homosexuality is, is an illness, uh, a side effect of capitalism, or that it is a trauma that was inflicted in early childhood and that can be rectified through education, through party education. So you had, yeah, you had a, a whole range. Yeah. Um, what I do think is that um, it always depends who you ask. I cannot answer this question conclusively. There would be activists saying one thing and then a commander saying another thing. And then um, I know that uh, what's happening in Rojava will force the party or has already been forcing the party to rethink a lot of the things um, or the, let's say, very strict framework around questions of sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, the individuals being overlooked. Yes, I think that's the, uh, that's the case. I don't really like the agency, mm -hmm. structure agency debate. I think in a case like this, what I tried to do anyway was, was to take seriously both sort of the, the demilitarized structures that force people to become soldiers and for soldiers that can then be deployed. Mm. Um, and at the same time, look at how this form of subjectification enables them then to reclaim a whole new identity that gives them a whole new set of power tools. Again, I try to not, yeah, it's... Individualism is not important. Pe not everyone becomes, in, becomes the same in the party at all. People, of course, have their characteristics, but they are expected to sort of follow a main line. So in that, in that case, if, if in general we define freedom as the f having the ability to choose, yes. to decide, so this is a particular form of freedom that's done within as long as you give in to the party exactly. structure yes uh, and then you so how, how how does this work with so i don't answer this question but what made me think is uh, you know how does this work with feminism or i know there are multiple feminisms uh but you know the, the feminist the core idea of feminism is this um uh, be, being able to um I, won't, I don't want to use agency after what you said, <laughs> but having the, having the ability to um, uh, challenge the existing structures and epistemologies and all that. So this seems like there's less challenging and acceptance, but challenging a bi wider system. So it's like you said, both. and then both. Uh, so they're also challenging I everything with, for example, genealogy, right? So there they're taking on all forms of male knowledge production. Um, and a lot of people who I talked to, they also said, we know that we have a lot of questions still open that need to be addressed around issues of sexuality, but we are in constant war 
and attacked from all sides in all four parts of Kurdistan. It just has to take a back seat. Um, yeah. But yeah, a lot of the, the ones I talked to, they were aware that there are certain shortcomings. And yes, I'll leave it there. Maybe there are some yeah. more questions about yeah. this later. Um, masculinity and femininity. Yes, so every system, every system also here is based on certain ideas around femininity and masculinity. When you join the party, you very much have to unlearn and relearn your ideas around what a woman is, who a woman is, what a man is, how a man has to behave. Um, there, uh, yeah, ideas around who the new man is, um, who who the new woman is, and it's I think very much tied to this idea of a militant, which is actually gender neutral. Everyone has to be steadfast. Everyone has to be communal. The women have the extra task because they are the most oppressed, according to Echelon and um, his ideology, because they're oppressed by uh, sexism, racism, and class. Um, so they actually have to fight the hardest to throw off these shackles of oppression. Um, whereas the men have to kill the dominant men, which means killing ideas around um, despotism and... and, and, and um, oppression that every man carries in himself. Does that answer your question? Does that mean a different masculinity? Yes, the new man. Like every other revolutionary movement, if you look at, for example, the Cuban Revolution or Fanon, uh, what Fanon describes, um, had ideas around how the new revolutionary uh, subject has to, has to reinvent himself or herself. And the myth about uh, about um, the 99 virgins. Yeah, that went around and around in media and was picked up by everyone. And um, I can only I only know what I what I also read that 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 that's what they really believed. Um, I think when I listened to interviews of th that question was also often posed to women fighters. They were like, "Is it true?" Da -da? And they were always laughing, sort of like, "Yeah, okay, it is true, but you know, we're fighting against something so much bigger." Um, they don't really care what's happening to the, to the ISIS dudes after they die. What they care is about challenging a bigger system of oppression, all the ills of capitalism, and which ISIS is a, is a, a result of. Thanks. Okay. Questions? Yeah. Um, Camilla Power, UEL. <laughs> You were discussing um, separatism, and there seems to be this kind of thread right from the early beginning of the Women's Congress getting taken hostage with the question of whether they were going to form something as a separate movement. And then it's becoming a sort of flowering in Rojava that um, we've got the village, the Jinwa village, um, and the parallel women's organization. So they see, and, and even within the, the um, uh, the, the militant mm. banks, there seems to be this kind of yearning for a separatist, almost a parallel society. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it's, it's contradictoriness. Shall we yes. take one, maybe one or two more questions? Yeah. <coughs> Like they insist on some concepts like patriarchy, they are so clear about the role of men, 
in uh, their oppression, they demand men to change, and they sometimes punish men to change. Yep. And they have uh, understanding of systematic gender oppression, systematic inequality, and they are in that sense maybe more closer to uh, second wave feminism in many senses. And however, in contemporary uh, feminist production, <laughs> knowledge production, we avoid, we never use the concept of patriarchy anymore. We are more like, there is no systematic characteristic, differences are so important. So I was wondering, how do you see their own feminism's capacity to empower those women in that struggle? Hmm. Any more questions? Shall we take one more? Bridget uh, from LSE, um, can you speak a little bit about whether you spoke to uh, women outside of uh, outside of the, the camps and um, what they said about the impact that this movement within the YPJ YPG is having on changing gender norms broadly in Rojava? Uh, <coughs> I guess in the implementation of sort of democratic confederalism in that sense, mm -hmm. in the, the broader sense. Mm, I start with that because that one's easy. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, so I didn't spend enough time. I, I only spent a couple of weeks in Rojava. So these camps were in the mountains. And um, I cannot speak to how gender norms have actually been effectively challenged in Rojava. I can only read what everyone else knows. Um, but I spent a lot of time in t eastern Turkey and northern Iraq where you can definitely feel a huge change. Um, even just looking at every demonstration, for example, in Eastern Turkey, where the women are always at the forefront, uh, every meeting that is being held, there are women at the front. Then that is sort of the, I would say, the window dressing part of it, the official part of it. But um, because so many people are in such strong solidarity with the movement, and let's say the father of a family is a sympathizer. Then the daughters have an incredibly powerful tool to say, yeah, but no, look, Öcalan said this and this and this. So that means I'm allowed to go out and organize and you know, uh, choose the political struggle over, for example, getting married. Um, in Iraqi Kurdistan, I spoke to someone who said it gave her um, inc incre incredible leverage when uh, having a dispute with her husband because of the, the brave Kurdish women fighting in Shengal and Rojava, she was saying, look what women can do. Um, that means we can do that too. And sort of men started looking at women differently. Um, changing gender norms and relations is such a slow process and it is never finite. Um, as we know, every regime that takes power uses women's bodies as a battlefield to implement ideas around us versus them, demarcating the boundaries between us versus them. We don't have to go to the Middle East for that. We just look at what Trump has been doing in terms of abortion. Um, so like I said, what they're trying to do is under constant attack. Now we see that such huge amounts of the, of the movement, uh, uh, members of the movement are in prison in Turkey, for example. In Rojava, we don't know what will happen. Um, so yeah. We don't know how, like, 
if they're going to be sustainable in the end, if, if, if uh, the movement is under such duress. Um, the Kurdish women's feminism. Yes. I thought about this a lot, this idea around patriarchy and how we're not allowed to use it anymore, which when you go to the Middle East and spend a lot of time there and live with these women, it actually still very much exists. And it's almost like you can touch it. Um, and so I understand why they're still using it. I also understand why we, when we look at certain uh, dynamics, have to perhaps be a bit more nuanced. Um, and around their, their own uh, feminism, I'm actually just, uh, just started a new research project with Nadia Ali. We're writing a, an article about genealogy. And for that, I went to Holland last week uh, to visit the women at Shin TV. Shin TV is a new TV station built by and for women, usually um, uh, reporting about issues concerning women. And I, and I put this question to them. How is it different from feminism? What, um, what, uh, what does genealogy have to add that feminism <coughs> does not have or does not um, uh, enable them to do? And it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, their argument is that feminism has always been an elite um, movement, has only had ideas and sort of um, uh, attacked the system from the outside but has never really managed to change the system, has, is critiquing but doesn't offer alternatives. Whereas they say genealogy, um, because it tries to build a system that is centered around women um, and, and they want to make genealogy accessible to everyone in all universities and all organizational structures should also evolve around genealogy, that it would sort of create a whole new system. Um, Yes, maybe we can discuss that later more. Um, the separatism. I think that that's a constant friction between the women needing the movement to advance, but also knowing how, mm, like that's what actually, actually what I try to demonstrate throughout is that sort of constant battle against the men. The men will take back power if and whenever they can. And if you look at the leadership, at the top, top leadership, it's still all men except one woman who sometimes speaks to the media, but I don't know how much power she actually holds. Um, yeah. Is that Aisha Abdullah? Besse Hosat. She's in Rojava. Yes, Asi Abdullah, yeah. Um, I think for now, yeah, they're tight. They're tight, but I also see see the demands to move away and, um, and, and establish their own, yeah, their own way of life, which I think Shinwar is only the start of. Apparently, they want to build many more Shinwars around uh, Rojava. Yeah. Any questions? Of course, yeah, two questions. And then I also have a couple of questions. So while others are thinking, can I throw them in as well? Okay, uh, let's take yours and then your question. Mm -hmm. um, hi, my name is Majdubi. I'm doing my master's in Sonas. And I've mainly done my, been doing my research in the past years about the Sabatista movement um, and the role that women played in Chiapas in Mexico. And uh, it's like a comment and question linked to... Um, 
what you asked about agency. So I was just wondering if um, in Kurdish women's philosophy, the notion of agency is very linked to this sort of flexibility in time. So they don't necessarily see it for Sabatistas. Um, and my question is, does it apply, does the same thing apply to uh, Kurdish women? But for Sabatistas, they don't necessarily see it as um, it's an obstruction to my freedom to not have the choice to focus on smaller topics rather than our big struggle. It's just a question of timing. So their notion of agency is not I'm deprived of agency, but my agency kind of spreads <coughs> across space and time, and I decide when to use it depending on whether it would get it would get a great outcome in the moment where we need a common struggle. Mm. So it's just one thing the same. That that reminds me of a lot of the things I heard in Kurdistan region about when I asked the policymakers why they were not initiating gender equal policies or legal changes. Uh, and I heard this from women themselves as well. We have other priorities right now. You know, ISIS is attacking. We are trying to recover our economy. Uh, nationalism is important. Like, you know, it's, it just reminds, that's why I asked the same question. That it just um, is puzzling, you know, to what extent this is kind of real feminism. And to, um, uh, sorry, I'll, after you, I'll ask, I'll ask my question. And I see another hand back there and here. Brilliant. Okay, please go ahead. Your talk emphasized the YPG following a decades-long history of political development by entire communities. Then you briefly mentioned the SDF, which came into existence only a few years ago, and whose members don't come from that long history of politicization on the whole, and they, and they come from other communities who wanted to fight ISIS. That's what they had in common. So I'm wondering, how did this, whatever you call it, political culture of the YPG find some opportunities to make some changes within the SDF as well? Mm -hmm. Hi, this is uh, Simon from Kings. I have a couple of questions. And the first one is on the, when I hear about the Kurdistan revolution, I think about the Nicaraguan revolution, or the Sandinista example, how it started a very strong uh, women's movement when women were the 45% of the guerrillas in the war. And the devolution did then occurred you know, over the years, and the militarism of leadership, or the male leadership, ended up with the revolution completely devolving. Mm -hmm. And Nicaragua right now is one of the worst countries for women's rights in the world. When the Sandinista movement started as a very powerful movement for women. And do you see the potential of the tensions between the militaristic goal and the political goal of Kurdistan devolving in the same way Nicaragua devolved? And, um, the second question leads to the liberation of uh, when the guerrillas were pushing west and they were entering non-Kurdish zones more and more into Syria. And they, all these tensions start coming and in the SDF with Kurdish and non-Kurdish members. The goals of the political liberation of women of different uh, of 
the structures of capitalism themselves. As the tensions started, you know, being more into into war, and they are you now occupy huge territory, do you see those political goals being less the focus, or do you see now that the situation is crystallizing, the potential of these territories to be liberated not only militarily mm -hmm. but you know, culturally for women and uh, in their economic structures as well? Mm -hmm. Right. And let's take the final question. Uh, or would you like to go ahead with these answers and then we'll come back to you later? Would you prefer? Um, There's quite I a lot that's there, enough. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Okay, I'll come to you after the answers. Um, about time. The, what, what struck me is that for a lot of the, um, the women who I interviewed, time didn't matter. And death also doesn't matter. So the, they have this long durée vision of the revolution. They say, it doesn't matter if I die tomorrow, I know we're not going to see freedom for the next 100 years. What I'm doing now is a small step towards that freedom that we might, with this vision and structure that we're building, might eventually see. Um, yes, so uh, a completely different um, relationship to, to time and death, generally. Um, around um, gender and... Um, and war. What I think is very different with this movement is that gender equality does not take a back seat. It's not like in Iraqi Kurdistan, mm -hmm. um, where they say, oh, okay, let's defeat ISIS first and then do gender equality. They're doing gender equality with everything they do, be it open a new, <coughs> uh, sort of liberating a new area and then establishing a new military council or new women's houses. Um, so I think that is what's truly revolutionary about this movement. Um, and that's also linking that to your question about Nicaragua, what I think is the big difference to any other revolutionary struggle that I've looked at, um, is because women cannot be pushed back. It's, it's not possible that they can be pushed back because they're in all important positions of power. And um, yes, be it in the activist sphere, be it the, the martyr mothers, the fighters, the politicians, um, they've made very sure that this is um, that this is both enshrined in the ideology as well as in the everyday practice. And I would say, uh, like as I said in my conclusion, I think it's actually the women who are driving the whole movement. Um, yeah, the SDF is a broad coalition between YPG and YPG and other um, uh, other forces. How exactly? they all came to accept the leadership or the ideology of Abdullah Ecalan. I don't know. Um, I know that it was, um, uh, what were they called before? What was SDF called before it became SDF? Mm -hmm. Something else. Anyway, it was a rebranding sort of overnight because the US said, we cannot support you if you have Rojava or that in your names. And so they, they changed the name overnight and, and it became SDF. And I think, um, yeah, uh, they, Going into non-Kurdish areas is extremely difficult because they face a much harsher pushback against ideas around women's equality. Uh, like I said, everywhere they go, they ban polygamy and child marriage, and that does not go down well with the Arab tribes. How that's going to play out, I, it's difficult to say because now the cards are being reshuffled again in Syria or are being constantly reshuffled. We don't know who's going to drop who or, or um, which model is going to survive. Um, 
what I read is that most of the Arab tribes also sort of played by ear once they switched their allegiance over to the Assad regime again. Um, but that's certainly going to be an uphill battle. If they hold on to this much territory, um, I think that's going to be a big challenge. Did I answer the questions? I think, so. yeah, I think you did. Um, so let's take another round of questions. Please go ahead. Okay, um, my name is Sarah Parker. Um, I was interested in your saying that the Kurdish women you talked to, some of them said they read a lot of history and quite a lot of questions um, about various things were still open. Um, I mean, I wonder if you think that people in the Kurdish women's movement would welcome I know it happens to a certain extent, but extending, having more dialogue with um, feminists and women activists from other places who also are looking at um, what's happening in Kurdistan, but other situations, um, because actually things don't stand still, things change a lot. I mean, yeah. I, for example, identified, um, I suppose, 40 years ago as a socialist feminist, and in recent years, I've actually come to think that um, a lot of the arguments for socialist feminism were very superficial in terms of dealing with women's oppression. Um, and I think there's quite a lot to be said for some of the things in some types of radical feminism. And if you look at the way things are going backwards, obviously, in terms of violence, modern-day slavery, the appearance of ISIS, um, you could go on for quite a long time. There's so much wrong in so many places. So I just wonder if you think they would welcome a, you know, more dialogue with other people doing balance sheets of the last 30 years and mm. looking at why things happening now and what can we do about it. From what I see, that's already happening and has been happening for a long time. The Kurdish women's movement has always welcomed feminists from across the world. They are like I said, building broad networks of solidarity, organizing huge conferences, um, or inviting people from uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and if Indian feminists. So that's been happening for a long time. Um, but yeah, so I think, that, well, actually one of my big hopes is actually for genealogy and how that's going to develop and how that's going to open up and involve new voices and, and, and how, how feminists in the West or in the East are going to react to that and what sort of common language can be found. May I? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I'm currently working with Masibi Kirtaxi, who uh, works for genealogy papers. She's engaging feminists in on a what? To represent at one of the camps. Oh. So yeah, they're really um, doing a wide sweep of engaging Yes. Mm. There are genealogy camps that you can go to if you're interested. Yeah. It's like a week weekend long training camp. Mm. <laughs> Any other questions? One more question. Any other? Somebody else who haven't asked questions yet? Okay, go ahead, please. Uh, and the last question will be on the role of uh, 
you know, the compromise and the, the military cooperation with the U.S. Mm. Up to what extent has that generated political compromise and limitations on the political goals of the Kurdish revolutionary And to what extent is that not only able to be one of those big contradictions that I sadly don't have an answer to. It's that, f it's that fight for survival versus holding on to your ideology. There's obviously a contradiction there. And uh, war is so messy. And uh, if you're as oppressed as the Kurds, as they sadly are, there's sometimes not so many so many choices that you have. I mean, that was a pragmatic choice that they made to align themselves mm -hmm. with the US. How that's going to play out is unclear. But they've obviously had a lot of criti criticism for it. And if you read interviews with, the, with their high commanders, they, they give you a, a, a nuanced answer why, why that was necessary. Or and then you speak to other people who think that was the biggest mistake ever, right? Um, so I cannot sadly resolve that conundrum. And I, I agree. I don't think they had much choice, like you said. And they are not naive. They know the US is doing it for its self-interest as well. They are effective on the ground. And then they know that US can might ditch them any moment. So they are not naively joining into this. Uh, and and it's a constant you know, contradiction. And the, the, the Syrian conflict has been a plethora of contradictions in any way and I think this is one of the most significant ones mm. I was going to ask a question related to that but also to the question of um, what you said in your presentation towards the end how uh, the the movement is redefining uh, its concepts or its, its uh, certain certain things since the Rojava Mm -hmm. uh, emerged basically in, in Syria. So, um, to what extent this reconsideration or rediscussions and redebating is related to uh, the Kurdish movement's increased engagement with the international community, mm -hmm. uh, either through interactions, alliance with the US, uh, opening embassies across uh, Europe, engaging with the uh, European policymakers uh, more, more, you know. Um, more so than before, mm -hmm. uh, and also um, redefining their uh, ideology. For instance, in the 1990s, early 2000s, in Turkey, there was a lot of reference to human rights violations, and the Kurdish movement used this framework to galvanize support outside Turkey for their for the, for the issues that they they were experiencing. With the uh, Rojava case, there was we, see, we hear a lot of emph emphasis on on democracy and liberation, on liberation or on country, you know, the, on um, de-radicalization, not not in the CV sense, but in terms of being defined as a progressive movement compared to the uh, radical Islamist mm -hmm. movements in the region. So they are framing their position within that international fr frame. Uh, so to what extent this? Uh, did you refer to the, the, what you referred to in terms of redebating and redefining, rediscussing? Is how to what extent that's related to yeah. what's happening in the international context? Between? Actually, I'm seeing more continuities than actual redefinitions. Mm. The area where I'm seeing a lot of development is genealogy. Um, and like I said, that's sort of where my hope is. Um, other than that, 
um, yes, it is a progressive movement, especially in terms because of, of, of um, their stance towards women's rights, but also multi-ethnicity and, and, and religious freedom. But like I said in my talk, they have their own idea around what democracy is and what liberation is. So um, I think Rojava forces the movement, though, at the same time to open up certain things, having to discuss LGBTI publicly, having to also welcome a lot of internationalists who come and fight and uh, are of perhaps different sexual orientation. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of more questions in my mind. Is there, are there, I want to prioritize the audience, obviously. Any questions? Yeah, please go ahead. Do you mind raising your voice? Yeah. Thank you. I'm not sure if this is within the scope of your research, but like these women have lots of transnational alliances, coalition work, but what about their immediate neighbors? Can you, how can you bring together, right, the women from the region? Mm. And I'm not sure if yeah. um, you address this. Uh, that would be the dream. <laughs> Unfortunately, almost every Kurdish woman you ask, be she from Iraq or Syria or Iran or Turkey, will speak about uh, Arab nationalism being a huge hindrance, um, Turkish nationalism as well. Um, I think in a Turkish context, we can say that Turkish feminisms ha feminists have a history of sort of looking down on Kurdish feminism, uh, accusing them of being too close to the to the art movement, to the PKK, when really they should move away and you know become more like Turkish feminists. In peace times, those collaborations are much easier. Then you see a lot of Turkish feminists aligning themselves with the Kurdish feminists. But as soon as the, the war breaks out again, which you know, there was a short peace time between 2013 and 15. As soon as that sort of breaks down, the, the, the polarization starts again and, and all feminists sort of go into their corner also. I mean, in, in Erdogan's Turkey, it's extremely dangerous uh, to, to align yourself with the Kurdish cause. Um, I would say something similar can be said about Iranian feminists and, and, and Iraqi feminists. I'm not so sure about Syrian feminists, but... Um, a sort of perhaps a certain arrogance um, towards the Kurds, I, I would say. Um, but yes, ideally, that to be honest, I don't know how that's working right now. How many um, efforts are being taken to speak to other Syrian feminists or to, um, well, it's only Syria because I know it's not happening in Iran and um, perhaps in Iraqi Kurdistan a bit more so. That's really interesting, though. You know, I think it's partly because of the PKK's ideology as a, you know, and it, it's, not a, it's not a typical ideology you would see in the Middle East among the political movements in the Middle East today. So that's kind of, I think, a, the, 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 you know, division. Also, um, engagement with the Rojava, um, engagement, um, non-state engagement with Rojava in the region has been quite limited. So they, they, they don't either don't have access, I don't know, you might you probably know better, or the UN has, for instance, has not been engaged that much, and so civil society organizations or solidarities or interactions between women's movement hasn't really happened. So in the events that I've been in the Middle East on women and gender and 
Uh, I, I have never seen a representative from Rojava uh, in those meetings, for instance. I'm not sure if UN even is in the inviting them. Probably not. To, no, to no, the they're being deliberately kept Image. out. That's yeah. not, uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, we, you know, and I think the, the movement has a lot to contribute to, uh, to the to the debates, ongoing debates. Uh, so it's a shame that you know that that it's not being mm. part of that debate. But I, I don't know whether it's also a decision on their part that do they, because it's in the end, it's a revolutionary movement challenging the existing uh, mm. ways of defining things. But just one more question, um, and then um, I think we, we we are almost running out of time. Uh, this idea of uh, what you said about sexuality was very interesting. That you know this abs abstinence uh, of what you said contract contract mm -hmm. and control of bodies. Um, wh where does this come from? Yeah, in the in the movement. So I'm I'm not an expert on the topic as much as you have you have you have uh, been looking into this issue in depth. But from my limited understanding, I heard some like myth myths that. Öcalan's uh, movement introduced this idea of no relationship between men and women to bargain with the patriarchal structures in the Kurdish society so that, so that I mean, obviously, I, you know, everyone takes this with a pinch of salt. This is kind of a, a you know, so mm. probably you heard of this as well and you probably have opinions about this statement. To what extent this is the case? And I'm sure this is not the case. If, or maybe partly the case, what are the other reasons? Where did this idea come from? It's very difficult to pin down exactly where it came from. Mm. I tried to find out and I couldn't. Um, I know that in the f for the first one or two generations of PKK militants, people were still married. Öcalan was married. Other high cadros were married at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but I, those cadros were mainly, I would say, sort of in the knowledge production uh, area of the movement. When, when more and more women joined and they realized that there's a, there's a big problem also between the sexes, between um, women and men in the party, eventually it, was, uh, it became illegal. But I'm not sure if it's because these reports were filtered back to Öcalan that you know women had were raped in the mountains or be, had become pregnant or that this and this commander did this and this to women, which happened in the early years, 1980s, early 1990s, that it then was um, was a, a pragmatic decision in that sense. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, there are lots of explanations. Of course, one is to cater towards a, a relatively conservative society to say you can give us your daughter and we preserve her honor. Um, yeah, and the other ones are the ones that I mentioned mm -hmm. uh, for women themselves saying, if I want to challenge a patriarchal society, it makes no sense for me to engage in a relationship with a patriarchal man, which uh, for me is the sort of the, the best explanation. But it's probably a mix of all of them. If anyone knows better why exactly it was implemented or where exactly it came from, please tell me. This, it was in the Zimbabwe, the Zanda gorillas used to have the same um, stipulation. Yeah. Um, David Lamb gives some account of it, but so you tell Ranger. Um, that, uh, and this was quite ritualized, that there would be all kinds of no-sex taboos, mm -hmm. and that success in battle would depend on. Yes, okay. Yeah, maybe he was influenced by that. I don't know. I'm, I don't 
don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for answering our questions. Thank you so much for all your questions as well. And um, just let's thank Isabel for this fascinating talk. <laughs> For those who are interested, um, the documentary about Anna Campbell is broadcast on BBC Two on July the 10th, 9pm. Okay, well, this brings us to the end of the event. So thank you so much for uh, coming here, joining us and the discussion, and hope to see you in our next event.